welcome to Classics Confidential. In this episode, we're going to be looking at weaving in the ancient world and the relationships between fabric production, gender and storytelling. It's a special episode which has been produced to accompany a series of events at the 2018 Being Human Festival in London. These events are being led by Dr Emma Bridges from the Institute of Classical Studies and Dr Ellie Mackin-Roberts from Royal Holloway University of London. Here's Emma Bridges on some of the links between weaving and storytelling. I suppose even now we use metaphorical language associating cloth production with, so we might talk about spinning a yarn, we might talk about weaving a tail. And that language is also used in the ancient sources to do with cloth production. It, it actually predates the Homeric text, so we, we can trace the roots of that metaphor and that symbolism back to Indo-European languages. But In the Homeric poems, we not only see the verbs for weaving relating to actual textile production, but we also see people weaving plans. Now, that's actually often male characters who weave plans. So Odysseus is said when he's escaping the Cyclops. The Greek term is to weave a scheme or weave a plan. The goddess Athena also uses the same language of her plan to get Odysseus back home. So the mortal women in... The Homeric poems do actual weaving with their hands, but it's also very much associated too with the act of creating poetry as well. So the act of putting together the Homeric epic, which is itself an evolving creative process, which might involve redoing and undoing in a formulaic way the poetry itself. Um, That's a process which uses words in a similar way that that, um, thread is used when you're weaving a piece of fabric, for example. This rich symbolic relationship between creating narrative stories and creating fabric is going to be at the heart of this episode. We'll come back to the Homeric poem soon, but first let's talk about the practicalities of weaving and textile production. Here's Dr Ursula Rothi from The Open University. So the main fibre that was used in the ancient world was wool. We kind of think of wool as a warm sort of fibre now for warm clothing but actually in the ancient world they were able to breed sheep and they bred sheep together in the Roman Empire from different parts of the empire for fineness so they could make very fine um, woolen textiles. They also had linen. Um, Linen doesn't dye as well as wool so it was often used for undergarments um, and um, it was cooler so it might have been used for more for, um, for, for summer clothing. It was certainly used a lot more in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire because flax was quite a common plant there. Apart from that, um, they were really the main, the main fibres. Cotton came in very, very late and was imported from India and is extremely rare. We find it only in really large quantities in the trading stations in in Egypt that traded directly with India. But cotton is is pretty much almost unheard of um, in in vast areas of the Roman Empire. Silk was very similar. It came from China. The method of production was a secret for a very long time. There was lots of of, uh, theories as to how it was produced. So it 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 had, had to be imported because the Romans didn't know how to make it, so it was also very, very expensive prestige good. It, it, it became less so over the over time as more silk came in. There was such a thing called Cohen silk, which was made from caterpillars on the island of Kos, the garn from those caterpillars, which was a similar thing to the, to the, to the Chinese silk. Um, but 
Um, silk from China, you know, remained the, the main prestige fibre. But it also had sort of connotations of sort of looseness and, and disrepute. So there was a certain uh, um, standard of behaviour involved with it. And as such, it, its use would have been limited by, by people wanting to convey a certain image as well. And there's camel and goat hair as well, mainly used for sort of bags and ropes and sacks and things like that. And also they made felt, um, the, the Romans. Um, so we, we know of felt workshops in places like Pompeii and that would probably have been mainly used for slippers and hats and things like that. We, we have an intriguing mention in Pliny um, of a special linen that wouldn't burn, the so-called asbestos linen. We don't quite know what it was, but so they did have sort of specialty fibres as well. Textiles were almost entirely, pretty much entirely handmade um, and uh, very laboriously, which is why they were extremely expensive. So the first stage was um, after the fleece had been prepared and there are various stages in the preparation of the actual fibre itself. It would be spun, hand spun using a spindle, taking the the fibres off of a stick called a distaff and then the, um, the, and then the th- yarn would be hand-woven on a loom, and there were two types of loom. There was a warp-weighted loom, which is the one with loom weights on the end, um, and then a two-beam loom, which, which had two sort of sides, um, and they're the two types of loom that were used. But it was, hand, it was hand-woven, so it was a very long process, and it involved lots of different people. The yarn would be arranged in two directions, called the warp and the weft, The warp was fixed and then you'd weave the weft through that. All these ancient techniques would involve hundreds of thousands of hours of work. So this is is why textiles were very expensive. This is why for poor people it would have been the most valuable thing they owned. This is why we have lots of accounts of textiles being stolen. Um, people being mugged for textiles, textiles disappearing from baths, you can imagine when people get undressed, textiles being handed down in wills. This is a, this is a valuable thing. Um, so it was a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a valuable commodity. Research on ancient textiles is a really exciting area and it often involves academics becoming practitioners themselves. Professor Mary Harlow is a Roman historian who specialises in textile production and she's constructed her own warp-weighted loom, which is going to form the centre point of some of the events at the Being Human Festival. My research is in uh, the dress and textiles of the Roman period. And a few years ago, I was ready to write my book because, like a good classicist, I had all the literary sources and all the visual sources at my fingertips. And then I was lucky enough to go to Denmark to work at the Centre for Textile Research where I learned about archaeological textiles and I had to rethink the whole process from the beginning. And in so doing, I've also become a practitioner. So now I'm um, an avid hand spinner. I'm a, oh, I don't know, addicted to natural dyes, natural plant dyes, which I collect whenever I'm going anywhere now. Uh, and most recently, I've begun to learn how to weave on a warp-weighted loom. Now, one of the things about ancient clothing is that when you look at the processes of it, you understand that from the very beginning of the production, the idea of the finished garment must have been in somebody's head. Because the way the wool or the linen 
is prepared and then spun, whether it's dyed or undyed, the way it's set on the loom, all has that finished garment in mind. So it's not a question of getting a bolt of cloth and deciding I'll make a shirt or a jumper or a pair of trousers out of this because you don't cut the pattern out. It's made to shape on the loom. Now I've started weaving, the other thing I have begun to understand is the amount of inherent mathematics it takes to set up a loom. How hard spun should your warp be? What weight should your loom weights be? How many warp threads to a loom weight? How wide do you want your garment? How dense? I, how many threads per centimetre do you want your weave to be? Are you going to introduce any patterning? At what stage are you introducing this? Because the other thing I've learned is that the beautiful textiles that we see from antiquity are all woven. Embroidery is a very late development, so nearly everything is inwoven. So we're talking some really, really skilled weavers in antiquity. Unfortunately, of very low status, but very, very skilled weavers. Okay, so set the practice aside for a minute. If you begin to talk about, to think about weaving, and you begin to th think about the mathematics, it leads you to have another look at the ancient texts. And suddenly the ancient texts speak to you in a very different way. Philosophers use odds and evens um, to talk about the way the cosmos is developed. They talk, you talk about numbering systems that are clearly odds and evens, just like the warps of a, a warp-weighted loom. A friend of mine is doing some research at the moment, Magdalena Orman, on the sound the loom makes and the way that Ovid's poetry, the cadences of Ovid's poetry, follows this sound. And what it does do is show how absolutely embedded textile production was in the ancient world. Everybody knew something about it, or they could use the idea of it to explain bigger, more complex ideas. So it's, it's very different from today, where we go to a shop and buy things. This would have been absolutely built into everybody's experience of antiquity. So it's a shame textile production is still not considered one of the very big themes of ancient history because it feeds into so much more. Creating a textile from start to finish involved lots of people of different genders, particularly in the Roman period when textiles started to be produced on an industrial scale. But the weave in itself was very much associated with girls and women. Traditionally, textiles were worked in the home and were women's work and that goes back into deepest antiquity. You can trace this in, in Bronze and Iron Age graves with distaffs and, and loom weights and things in, in female graves. You can, um, you can think of Penelope and, her, and, and weaving her tapestry. You can think of Lucretia and her wool work. You can think of um, Augustus boasting that Livia made all his clothes and that it, it will have gone back to the idea that making textiles was something you could do in the house and could pick up and put down while you were looking after kids or, or whatever. You could do it around other household work. But it became synonymous with female virtue. So it became synonymous with being a respectable woman at home, you know, doing your duty as your as your head of the as the head of the of the household. 
and um, and that carried on, you know, until uh, until the modern times. You think about all the ladies in aristocratic houses doing needlepoint and and that kind of stuff. It's the same tradition going through. And what that means is that um, the weaving, the all of the of the, all of the textile work, but especially the weaving, which is really the most complicated part. And you know, we're talking about in in some parts of the Roman Empire, quite complex patterns being woven as well. I mean, it's 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 pretty complicated stuff. All of these techniques will have been passed on from mother to daughter, and daughters will have grown up with this, with these techniques. Now, textiles weren't just woven in the home. They were sometimes an important part of public festivals. Dr Ellie Mackin-Roberts is an expert on the Arafuroi, the group of young girls who lived on the Athenian Acropolis for a year and whose role involved weaving a gown, a peplos, for the goddess Athena. I asked Ellie to give us a sense of the kind of evidence we have for these girls and their weaving. Well, that's always a problem with marginalised and uh, non-citizen groups, isn't it? That there isn't a lot of... Um, evidence. We have some evidence from Pausanias, which is obviously late, uh, from my period, which is sort of classical. And we have some uh, epigraphical evidence, core uh, statues that are set up um, in commemoration of girls who have served as Arafori. Um, but again, they're mostly third century, um, so later. We have some very tantalising fragments um, and bits on different kinds of epigraphical evidence and some votive reliefs and not a whole lot. There's a sculpted scene from the Parthenon as well, the so-called peplos scene on the frieze, which researchers have interpreted as representing two arafuroi. On the peplos scene, which is in the centre of the east face, uh, the traditional reading, if there is such a thing, is that it is um, the priestess of Athena and two Arafori, uh, and the priest of Zeus or maybe the priest of Poseidon Erechtheus or maybe the Archon Basileus and some other little kid um, either folding, I think folding up last year's peplos um, but perhaps bringing out the new peplos or something like that. Um, that's actually where I began this research by looking at the peplos scene and then I started actually kind of thinking who's looking at this um, how are they looking at it it's like an interior freeze it's not very easy to see it is obscured um, in large part and when you're talking about like little girls are they looking at it do they know enough about it to read themselves into the image on the frieze? Probably not. Um, even when they're living on the Acropolis and it's around them all the time, are seven-year-old girls, or seven to 11-year-old girls interested in that kind of stuff? Maybe, but maybe not. They live on the Acropolis. We believe they live on the Acropolis um, for a 12-month period. They start about a, they, the new lot um, come up, up uh, about a month before the Panathenaea um, so that's the first thing that they do so the peplos that gets given in your Panathenaea is not the one that you weave or help weave um, and then a couple of months after that at the Chalcaea they set up the loom spend nine months weaving uh, and then at the Arafuria which is 
phenomenal. That's the last thing that they do. So what they do is they're given, these two or maybe four little girls are given a box that they're not allowed to open and then at night time they descend from the Acropolis to a place that we're not really quite sure where it is but maybe it is some kind of sanctuary of Aphrodite and they give the box to a person who's there who gives them another box that they're also not allowed to open and then they go back up to the Acropolis. <laughs> and at no stage does, do any of them know what is, well, reportedly um, do either the Arafori or the priestess of Athena know what's in the boxes. And do we know anything about the experience of the girls as they were weaving? I kind of wonder about how involved in the weaving they actually would have been. Uh, Weaving is really setting up a loom, weaving, um, particularly weaving something as intricate as this would have been with scenes of the gigantomachy, would have been like serious business weaving and not like seven-year-old girl play weaving, um, not just from the strength that it takes to like actually beat the weave, um, but also the technical know-how um, of putting together a garment of this quality and intricacy. One of the things that I think that the Arafora probably do do is help with um, washing and carding and spinning the wool and even washed and carded wool when you spin it it leaves lanolin all over your hands and that's oily and sticky and even though that's sort of now we're not talking about being in the middle of summer that's still quite a sweaty experience um and that obviously the tactile nature of weaving itself of like the actual act of weaving you know the woof through the weave and beating it up um, and it's physically demanding as well so it's like it just would have you would stop at the end of the day and ache and be covered in sweat and oil from the wool grease um, and it just would be like even then just the act of washing becomes something different because washing grease or oil off your skin is much different to washing anything else the scrubbing that you might have to do and maybe do day in day out what does that do to you know the way that your hands are so the weaving experience the tactile experience of weaving would change over time and because If you're spinning day in, day out, you get calluses and all of that kind of stuff. So I think what's really interesting about looking at it from a a sensuous perspective is that then we can start to understand how the experience changes from day to day. Ellie's work opens up lots of new questions about the lived experience of weaving, especially for young girls. In the ancient texts, most of the weavers we meet are adult women or goddesses. It's time now to move on to perhaps the most famous weaver of them all, Penelope from the Odyssey. I'll briefly set the background for her story. When we first meet Penelope, she's been at home on Ithaca for almost 20 years without Odysseus. He's been fighting in the Trojan War for 10 years and then making his way home for another 10. 
And during that time, she's been besieged by a group of more than 100 suitors who either believe or hope that Odysseus isn't coming home again. They want Penelope to marry one of them and they want to take possession of Odysseus's belongings and palace. But Penelope has come up with a cunning ruse. She says she will marry one of them, but only after she's made a shroud for her father-in-law, Laertes, Odysseus's father. She says she needs to prepare Laertes' shroud to make sure he has a proper burial while Odysseus is away. She begins weaving the shroud, but what the suitors don't know is that every night she's unpicking the weaving that she did during the day. At the point we meet Penelope, the ruse has been discovered. One of her female slaves has told the suitors what she's been doing, so she can't put the decision off any longer. This is also the point at which the action of the Odyssey starts, because Odysseus is on his way home. Here's Dr Emma Bridges on Penelope as a weaver. In many ways, Penelope becomes the figure of the archetypal faithful wife. And so her weaving becomes very closely associated with issues to do with fidelity, issues to do with ideal womanhood. So it's very gendered. Um, as in lots of other contexts, we find in the Odyssey that weaving is um, very much a female activity. Um, and it seems to be related to ideas of domestic order. So um, women are seen not just Penelope um, but also we find Helen we find goddesses weaving we find sort of Circe Calypso also weaving in the Homeric poems um, it's very much associated with domestic space it's an activity that happens inside the house and it's associated with that sense of keeping things in order obviously it's, a, it's quite an ordered activity in itself isn't it I suppose it's um it's um a repetitive yet creative activity um, so while the men are outside fighting and managing the city and dealing with what we might call politics, uh, the women are indoors. And the, so the loom very much symbolises both female space and female activity. Um, but it's also quite closely linked with storytelling symbolically as well. Women's voices are simply not heard as much in ancient literature and in ancient mythology, and certainly in the case of Penelope, we get the sense that she doesn't get a lot of opportunities to tell her own story. So, for example, when Odysseus comes home um, and she and her husband recognise each other and are reunited, she gets four lines to tell the story of what's happened to her in his absence. Um, and he gets almost ten times that to tell her his story. And it's basically a repetition of the story that of the Odyssey, which, you know, Odysseus' story is... The whole of the Odyssey, Penelope doesn't get a lot of space to talk about her story. We don't hear a lot about her voice. So there's a lot of sense of, of silencing. Um, and it almost feels as though the creativity of the loom is one way in which women can express themselves and an alternative to spoken word um, storytelling. What's interesting too about that is that there are a couple of occasions in the Odyssey where Penelope is specifically silenced by a man, by her son Telemachus. And when we first meet her, she's hearing, she's over, she overhears the song of the bard Phemius. And Phemius is singing of the tales of the Achaeans who've been to Troy. And it moves her to tears when she hears it. And she actually asks if he can sing of something else because it's, um, it's so affecting. Telemachus, her son specifically says, um, this is not your place to speak, 
go back to your loom. So he specifically sends her back to her weaving. And that happens again later on in the Odyssey as well, when she's talking to the suitors about the contest of the bow, which she actually set up as a way of testing um, which of them should marry her. And it's actually, it's the process by which Odysseus is, is revealed as having returned to Ithaca. And at that point, Penelope's actually discussing this with the suitors and it, for the second time, in almost the same terms as he did the first time, Telemachus also says, the bow is, is my business, I'll take over here, you go back to your loom. Um, so it's a mode of expression that's available to women when vocalising in public might not necessarily be available. We might say that Homer doesn't let Penelope tell this story we don't ever hear what Penelope Shroud looks like, if there was a design on it or even what colours she chose. And we don't hear her singing at the loom like we do some other weaving women in the Odyssey, like the goddesses Circe and Calypso. And this silence around the figure of Penelope and her weaving has left a space in which later artists and poets are free to imagine her and her shroud and the physical and emotional conditions that she worked in. In visual art, it starts quite early on. Um, the name vase of the so-called Penelope painter has the figures of Penelope and Telemachus in the foreground, but the space of the vase is absolutely dominated by a huge loom. Um, and again, that's linked with, I think, ideas about domestic space. It's quite clear that this is indoors, this is feminine space. Um, and that dominance of the loom over the visual image has reappeared in lots of works of art ever since. Um, one that's always been particularly striking to me is, is the Waterhouse painting, um, 1912 painting, which is Penelope and the Suitors. And there you've got Penelope completely absorbed at the loom, or at least pretending to be completely absorbed. We can't be certain of that. Um, and she's indoors while the suitors are sort of hanging through the windows, waving bunches of flowers at her and desperately trying to get her attention and yet she's utterly engrossed in the work that's in front of her. Um, so you could read that in lots of different ways. You could say that it's a distraction technique for her. She's trying to take her mind off the chaos of the situation around her or the absence of her husband, or um, she's trying to make it quite clear that she's not interested in the suitors, so therefore it becomes a symbol of fidelity. But again, there's very much that sense of this is, this is the female indoor space and the men, the male suitors, are trying to intrude on that space and trying to kind of drag her away from it. Um, another example of a, of a reception of, the, of Penelope's loom, which is incredibly visually striking, is an installation by a Brazilian artist called Tatiana Blas. And this is an installation which was in a chapel in Sao Paulo. And there, the artist set up a huge loom on the chapel altar uh, threaded with vast quantities of red thread, some of which forms a neat red carpet that goes all the way up the aisle of the of the chapel, um, but the rest of which kind of spills out through holes in the wall and out into the gardens beyond and hangs from the trees. And it's a kind of overwhelming sense of the act of creation, but also I think the the kind of it feels like quite a a stressful and anguished space to me, which seems to say something about perhaps Penelope's state of mind at the, um, at the time of the weaving and the unweaving. Penelope and her loom have been constantly reimagined across all different artistic and literary genres. 
Ben Ferris is a film director and writer who's currently the artistic director of the Sydney Film School. In 2009, he made a film called Penelope. It was an Australian-Croatian co-production and it won the Van Gogh Award for the Best Fantasy Film at the Amsterdam Film Festival the following year. I called Ben in Sydney to ask why he'd chosen Homer's Penelope as the subject of his debut feature film. She she was an interesting character. I think the thing that sort of that um, I was drawn to about Penelope was the fact that she's such a such an enigmatic character in many ways. Um, so your imagination kind of runs wild because you sort of have to um, draw conclusions about you know what her motivations might be and um, what her interior process might be and 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 um i found that really a very exciting proposition i guess if you're kind of going to make an attempt at creating a new interpretation it's kind of like the the ultimate the ultimate character to choose because he's sort of got so many choices so many ways to to approach her In the film, Penelope is weaving a shroud that's made of a delicate white material. It's actually transparent and it's patterned with spidery white lines which radiate out from an embroidered circle. That was designed by Jenny Tate, the the film's designer, and um, uh, the discussion around it, it actually came quite late, um, how we were going to present the shroud. And... Um, really, I, can, I think the kind of driving principle here was to think about it in terms of also as a as a, a wedding veil. So it was kind of to play on, uh, introduce this idea, I guess, into the reading of the shroud. I guess in the sense that uh, I was interested in that reading um, because, in a sense, by suggesting the veil it's it's pretty subtle really in 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 looking at the film but for me that's a suggestion of what Penelope is working towards or keeping at bay uh in terms of her remarriage if if you like to to one of the suitors so that was quite important for me in in contemplating um the materiality of the scene At one point in the film, quite unexpectedly, Penelope sets the shroud on fire. Ah, yes, the burn, burning. Look, again, this decision came quite late. I originally had um, Penelope tearing the the shroud veil to to pieces with her bare hands, Um, but it's kind of just at a, a, a dramatic level to me felt like it um, lacked something. Was it sort of a bit awkward, a bit prosaic, a bit um, clumsy? Um, So I had to quickly think of a a more forceful, uh, violent catharsis that I wanted to, to, um, which is what I was trying to convey through that that scene. Um, And so the the idea of the, the burning came out of uh, searching searching for that that sense of catharsis i think uh, i guess it's it's had diff- different reactions i mean there are di- di- different in certainly different interpretations about what penelope's doing there and and 
um, what the the shroud or or the veil signifies at that particular moment. The burning happens at a violent moment in the film and the destruction of the shroud mirrors a significant turn in Penelope's story. But beyond the materiality of the shroud itself, the very idea of weaving meant something quite fundamental to Ben as a filmmaker. I mean, I, I was applying that process almost uh, instinctively, I guess, um, in terms of how I was uh, um, structuring the narrative. So there's a sort of, and, and in, in a sense when you're dealing with myth, I guess you kind of have to do this. You, you're kind of um, weaving the different parts together. You're pulling it apart as well. You're pulling the myth apart and then trying to s stitch things back together again to make, make sense of it for yourself. So um, it was kind of, fundamental actually to to the whole project i don't know if that makes any sense that absolutely does make sense and it would have made sense to homer too and to later roman writers like the poet ovid who also drew a connection between weaving and the creation of stories it's worth noting here that the latin word texera is at the root of the english words text and textile Here's Emma Bridges. Ovid actually, at the very start of the Metamorphoses, alludes to the connection between um, creating song and creating textiles. So he refers to his poem as a deductum carmen, and that's from the Latin verb deducere. So it's a, it's a fine-spun song, a deductum carmen. Um, and that imagery recurs a lot in the Metamorphoses, and there are some particular moments where we get connections made between storytelling and cloth production. Again, it's often gendered in Ovid, uh, and it's often to do with who's controlling female creativity and female speech. There are several stories which really stand out. One in particular is the story of um, Philomela, who is subjected to a horrific rape at the hands of Tyrius. And in order to silence her, um, he, he cuts out her tongue. So she has no way of telling her own story. The way that she tells her story to her sister is that she actually weaves the story of what's happened to her in a, into a piece of cloth. So it's a kind of way around the silencing of a woman's voice in that case. Purple threads woven into a pure white background. That's how Ovid describes Philomela's message. And this is just one of the woven women's stories that we read about in classical literature. Elsewhere, when we see others weaving, um, we, do, we do get a, a sense of what's on there tapestries. So Andromache, for example, in the Iliad, we're told that um, at the point at which she receives news of Hector's death, she's actually weaving as well, and she drops the shuttle at the moment that she realises what's happened to Hector. And we're told that she's weaving brightly coloured flowers. So it's not really a sense of storytelling, but we do get a sense of what the image might be that she's weaving. Helen, on the other hand, when we first meet her in the Iliad, we see her weaving the story of the contests, is the word that the poet used, the aethloi, the contests between the Greeks and the Trojans, which is in a sense a very male story, but it's also Helen's own story because they are, of course, fighting over her. Um, so there is a sense that there may be stories being told in the, in the contents of the, the tapestries, tapestries themselves. In connection with that, there's also perhaps a sense that when women are weaving, they are surrounded by other women 
and they have the opportunity to talk to one another, to share stories, um, to sing perhaps. When we see both Calypso and Circe, two of the immortal women of the Odyssey, when we first meet them, both of them are engaged in cloth production and they're also singing at the same time, which might give us a sense of the way in which women tell stories and sing as they work in a kind of very traditional, all-female setting in an all-female space. These songs and stories are lost to us now, but we can try and imagine them with the help of archaeology and ancient literature and contemporary ethnographic studies as well. Mary Harlow earlier in the programme shared how learning to spin and weave and dye fabric had led her to a new understanding of ancient weaving. And looking at other types of modern craft production can also expand our imaginations and open up new questions. Dr Anna Fisk is a researcher in literature, theology and the arts at Glasgow University. She's been working with women who knit, listening to their stories. She's also a knitter herself. So I am a knitter um, and I, I think I learned to knit when I was about 18. I'd been taught as a child and then I um, took it up again when I was doing my A-levels. Um, and I think I just thought, oh, it'd be nice to have, I want to make myself a scarf. It'd be nice to make something for myself. And I just, just didn't stop after that, really. And I also do uh, a lot of my own spinning and I, and I dye as well. I do natural dyeing. Um, so I tend to collect lots of plants and... Um, you know, put them in a pot with water and then put the yarn in and heat it up and it usually comes out yellow. That, that's generally <laughs> what happens. But like I grow my own woad actually so I can get, get dye yarn blue using woad um, and things like that. So. Anna's work as a knitting practitioner is closely entangled with her academic work which has recently been focused on the implicit religiousness of knitting in contemporary modernity. In my kind of more theoretical theological work I've used quite a lot of autoethnography so bringing my own experience and writing about um, my own life into it so I've been doing that partly but I've also been doing qualitative research um, um, with other knitters and so um, part of that was participant observation so although I've always gone to knitting groups just as a person I started going along to them with consent forms saying to people that I'm here doing this research I'm going to be maybe taking some notes about things that are said everything will be anonymous um, if you if you want to take part then you know can you sign sign here so that I was observing and taking notes um, and then I've been doing some interviews so I put out a call on, on Facebook and Twitter and on Ravelry um, asking for knitters who just want to come and talk to me about, about their knitting practice and about how it's important to them. So I travelled all around central Scotland meeting up with people and we just sat together and knitted for an hour or so. I had a, a dictaphone, I was doing what you're doing to me now with a, um, with the tape, but we sat together and I would do my knitting and they would do theirs and we would talk about what we were making um, and I'd often tend to ask them, um, how did you learn to knit? That was a question I'd generally ask and um, I found I often did ask that that would often lead to questions about about mothers or grandmothers or people who taught them to knit. Um, and I'd often ask them about knitting gifts as well. That, that seemed to be something in which you could find out a lot about somebody's knitting and what it meant to them by um, when they knit for other people. Listening to Anna talk about contemporary knitting, it's hard not to think about the ancient women that we've been hearing about in this programme. The ones who learned their craft from their mothers and grandmothers 
and who sat around singing and telling stories as they worked together. Some people really want to give a lot of meaning into things they do and other people kind of tend to downplay it. So for some people it's very clearly yeah, I mean, I did interview one person who was a chaplain and she did think about her knitting in quite um, an explicitly kind of spiritual way. She would be her, for her it would be about taking time to, to care for herself and to enter into a kind of almost prayerful state. Um, for other people it was, it's just what you do. It's just what you do every day. And then I would sort of press her, but you do it every day. Why do you do it every day? How do you feel on a day when you don't do it? Um, often when people are asking about if they knit gifts for a lot of people it's only for very significant um, events birthdays weddings um, things like that they wouldn't just not every christmas or um, for every family member not everyone gets a gift but for some people that they do and everything that they do knit is to go to someone else so they can't quite imagine making things for themselves Crafting gifts to mark special occasions, this is something women have done for centuries, like the young girls who wore themselves out making the peplos for Athena. But whether it's an elaborate ritual garment or a cardigan for a loved one, the time and the physical labour and the stories that go into producing a textile make it something very special. It's time for us to wind up now, but if you can, go along to the Being Human Festival this month where you'll get the chance to try the warp-weighted loom, listen to tales of ancient women weavers and share some of your own stories too. And if you can't go, well, we hope you've enjoyed this episode and you can find plenty more links and bibliography on the webpage which is at classicsconfidential.co.uk. This episode featured the voices of Emma Bridges, Ursula Rothy, Mary Harlow, Ellie Mackin-Roberts, Ben Ferris and Anna Fisk. I'm Jessica Hughes. Please do join us again next time for another episode of Classics Confidential.